Welcome to the Exhibit A podcast. Welcome to Exhibit A. Today, we have uh, some power hitters here today. I'm going to say we have the power working moms, Allie and Casey. And I say that because both of you are, uh, we've talked about this before, Casey, is both of you are able to handle a full-time profession and be full-time moms. And I don't know how you do that. You both have uh, children currently in the home. So, so Allie, one thing that I heard about you recently, I didn't know this, but you get up like at five in the morning, you go work out before you come here. I do. I do. I, well, I get up at four 30, my class is at five 30. Um, I'm done by six 30 and I'm on with my day, but that's because that's the only time that's my time. There's nothing that can interrupt, you know, very little that can interrupt with that time in the afternoons. Forget about it. It gets eaten up by work or kids or other stuff. Um, but the morning is my time. That is so incredible. I consider myself a morning person, but not that type of a morning person. I've never been able to work out at like five in the morning. Now, I know Casey would never do that because she's a night person. <laughs> I am a night person. I'm a night owl. I, I'm a little bit of a mess right now because um, I don't sleep at night anymore because I have an infant. But um, I, I strive to be like Allie and wake up at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> okay. Well, you have no choice. I mean, you get that crying baby and your little toddler and you've got to be up and stuff. So, so any tip, just give us one tip that you could give to our working moms out there. Allie, what would you say as far as how, to, how you're handling it? What you would tell somebody that's aspiring to do it all work, take care of kids, you know, if, whether they're in school or whatnot, well, give, give them one tip. Forgive yourself. Oh, I Forgive like that. Yourself. What you does know, that you're, mean? You're doing your best. Um, you know you're doing your best. Your kids know you're doing your best. And show up, be there, be present when you're with them. But forgive yourself for the times where you feel like you, um, you know, you can't go to every, for me, it's, it's sports, right? I, I, I have to forgive myself that I can't go to every softball game. You know, I, I try to get there for most of them, but three o'clock <laughs> is not the easiest time. Yeah. And the ones I'm there for, I enjoy. And the ones that I can't be there for, you know, I, I just have to let it go. It's hard. It's yeah. hard, but, and, and it's, you know, every, everyone has their own things, but forgive yourself. You're, you're doing a great job. Okay. What about you, Casey? One tip. One tip, self-care. If you don't fill your own tank, then you're going to be depleted and you cannot yeah. give. You're a, you're a better uh, person, friend, spouse, mother, uh, employee, professional, if you fill your, your joy tank and uh, take care of yourself. Okay. So I've got to follow up on that. What do you... What do you do? Whatever it is you love to do, whether okay. it's sit and have a meal by yourself, go to a movie, get a massage, go to an exercise class, um, self-care. That's what I'm striving to balance out in my life. Okay, cool. Well, speaking of balancing things out in your life, do either one of you have any Super Bowl plans? Uh, you know, For the people watching this, we are filming this on Friday, the uh, day before Super Bowl weekend. Uh, what plans do you have? We're just going to a friend's house. Watch the game, a group of people. We're not super into, we're into college ball more yeah, I than, know that. than pro. Yeah, I know that because I've sit, sat next to you and Scott in many games. Now, Casey, you and I go to the same Super Bowl party, so I really yes. don't need to ask that question. Yes, well, I'm into the commercials, but I'm fortunate <laughs> enough to get invited to a Super Bowl extravaganza. Um, I think six years in a row, uh, food trucks, um, drinks, Lots of people, games. It's definitely an event, and I'm very honored to be invited. Yeah, again I agree. I, I think that in America, we've created a new holiday. 
the Super Bowl day holiday. And the only complaint that I have is is that we don't take a day off either before or after, <laughs> particularly after because of all the food we eat. Yeah. Uh, you know that, and that's an, actually there's two complaints. One is we don't have a recovery day afterwards, and two is is that it's just another food day. And you get you know through November, December, you get into January, and you go, okay, now I could get back on the the swing of things. And then Super Bowl day comes, and it's like, oh, here we go again. So, well, Don, your name is on the wall. So if you want to take a recovery day, we will all forgive you. Uh, I, gonna, I, I had a feeling that was going to come. What were you I was going to add this morning when, when you said the commercials, there was a story on NPR um, for, about the commercials, right? And this year, there's more commercials than ever targeting women. Perfect. Because they really, like Oil of Olay, I think, has... Um, for the Super Bowl. For the Super Bowl. And um, Sarah Jessica Parker is, is well, that's um, smart. in one. Yeah, That's so smart. Get, that everyone, get everyone involved yeah. in the party. Cool. Okay. Well, let's go to the topic today. Uh, today, I thought the reason why we brought the two of you together is, is that you have worked uh, on a very similar type of case. I know you've even collaborated on a case or two. And I'll just lead into the topic this way. Is, is I've been in the law either as a police officer or as, or as an attorney, ever since I was really 19 years old. I mean, I've been in it for a long, long time, you know, and after a while you think I've seen everything, right? I mean, you, you would think that I would, you know, and I'm sure that you think that way too, is you've seen a lot of cases, but you never do. There's always something out there. I remember when I was a, a DA, I was amazed that, that there's like cottage industries of defense attorneys that just represent people that are, commit welfare fraud, you know, and you get these stack of cases, you know, or the deadbeat dads or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, there's just these little niches of bad behavior of people that, that we attorneys have to deal with. Coming into the family law, I didn't think that I would see it, but, you know, there is a niche, and that is what I call the case of the stolen spouse. You know, I know this sounds like a mystery novel to uh, to our uh, viewers, but we know what that means. It's a case where, uh, and I, I, I guess I have to describe it by giving a hypothetical. And a hypothetical would be, and this is not based on any case that we've done, although I've borrowed some of the some of the facts. Um, husband and wife both were previously married. Uh, the husband had children from his first marriage. During the second marriage, there's no further children. Uh, they enjoy a wonderful marriage. They're married for 25 years. Uh, she, he's much older than her. Let's say that he's you know 15 years older than than the wife. And as he's in his late 70s, he starts having some medical conditions, and eventually uh, he's in pretty bad shape. In fact, he loses his mental capacities to some extent. And he has good and bad days, and he requires 24/7 care. So. You know, at this point, the wife is caring for him with the help of two caretakers, and it's a very arduous thing for her. She, you know, wasn't really equipped for this, but she's doing the best she can. Uh, husband's being fed. He's, you know, he's, he's definitely being taken care of. One day, uh, she opens up her mailbox, and she discovers that she got a trip, a free trip to uh, the Caribbean. And she, she thinks about it for a little bit, and she thinks, you know, just for one week. If I could just leave for one week, it would just give me some time off. I've been doing this for a couple of years. It's, it's really draining on me. The caretakers are great. He's got family. He probably wouldn't even know that I'm leaving. So I'm just going to go just to kind of restore myself. So she, t- she leaves. She leaves for a week, has a great time, comes back. And when she enters the door, she notices not only is the house half empty, but hubby's missing. 
He's gone. And there's a note on the table that says, uh, dear, we'll, we'll leave out the first name. Uh, we've taken dad with us. Uh, you weren't taking good care of him. He's now living with us. If you need to talk to him, this is the phone number you could reach. That sound familiar to you? Mm -hmm. Now, I think what's interesting is, is for Allie, uh, I didn't know this, but that's a, a fact pattern that you, you people that, you attorneys that deal with estate planning, you've, you're familiar with this. I mean, it's not so unusual for you, but for Casey and I, it's a, it's a strange set of facts. Um, you know, I think what strikes me is, is the fact that the husband, who's now, you know, doesn't have the capacity anymore, if he were around, would he want that? Right. You know, um, you know. So, let's talk first of all about conservatorship. I mean, uh, in that fact pattern, uh, the children or one of the children are going to try to get conservatorship over the father. What uh, what is a conservatorship, and how does it work? So, a conservatorship is um, it's it's like a guardianship for children, but it's for adults. Um, and it's when the the conservatee, uh, who's the older, usually the older person, doesn't have um, full mental capacity, and so a, a, a another responsible person is appointed to basically care for them. And um, it's two pronged. There's a conservatorship of the person, so that's you know taking care of the health and the the safety and that kind of stuff of the person, and then a conservatorship of the estate. Um, which is, you know, taking care of someone's money, finances, um, income, um, assets. So in your scenario, you know, the, the spouse doesn't even have to leave the home, so there's an opportunity. I mean, I have cases that, and I think what's pretty universal about these cases is what you started with is that it's a second marriage, right? So there's right. children from the first marriage. Um, so there's a lot of emotional stuff that's tied with this, right? Um, and kind of that past family stuff that plays into a lot of it. But the, the children from the first marriage petition the court for conservatorship over dad. Um, and so wife is in the home and right there, but all of a sudden this, this legal proceeding, you know, someone's thinking that they're caring for their spouse, all of a sudden the court is involved in their life. And that's very scary and very intrusive. Yeah. And so in this scenario that I put out, uh, what is the wife going to have to do if, if she wants to fight the attempt to get conservatorship? Object. Object, object, object. And um, what does the court consider? Uh, the court considers the well-being of the proposed conservatee, so the older person. Um, the court is going to look at what the assets are, how they're being spent um, for, the, for the estate portion. And then for the person portion, um, you know, is the proposed conservatee being cared for? Is, is he clean? Um, is he going to doctors? Is he getting appropriate medical care? Do, do they have care in the home? Do they have proper care in the home? You know? Yeah. Allie, as between the spouse and the children, is there a preference in the law? Yes, the spouse does come first. Um, although in this area, it's uh, there's a lot of discretion with the court. Yeah, a there. lot of discretion. So, Casey, you know that from handling family law cases, children... Uh, who are the product of a divorced family, a lot of times don't like the new spouse or the stepmother or the stepfather. 
uh, and that could carry on all the way into adult childhood. Uh, in some of the cases that we've handled, we've seen these facts play out a little differently, where the children then get conservatorship and they file for divorce on behalf of the parent. Uh, were you shocked when you first saw that type of scenario? Well, um, I've seen a couple of different um, scenarios that kind of tr are triggered in your fact pattern. Um, those cases are difficult, and I've been on both sides of the scenario. It's certainly, family law is already hard, but then add to it uh, adults, multiple adults being the adult um, children that are all chiming in to, you know, what is in the best interest of your client, uh, essentially. So it makes it even more difficult in that regard because you're looking out for the interest of your client and you have to be very careful about third parties chiming in and trying to push essentially their interests, i.e. their future estate. Their financial interests, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and so one thing we didn't talk about yet, Allie, is, is the fact that the children could also file for divorce on behalf of their parent. Now, that occurs either before or after the conservatorship is granted. A it's after, after, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so how do they get to do that? You talked about their, their, the conservator for their financials, the conservator for their well-being, but I didn't hear divorce in there. What's the theory behind that? So when a person becomes conserved, it's a very serious process because their, their rights are being taken away, right? The court takes it very seriously. Um, so actually, your, your right to manage your own finances is a lot easier. That, that right is easier to take away than the right to marry. That's a basic right that the court feels, um, it, it, the court is very hesitant to, to take away. So for example, I had a conservatee, this was years ago, who um, desperately wanted to marry his lady friend. And his lady friend was very obviously taking advantage of him. And um, the court, the court appoints an attorney to represent the interests of the of the conservatee, and his attorney had to petition the court to to give him permission to to marry, um, and the court gave it to him, even though it was it was really not in his best interest. But again, and I I believe that the right to marry is on the same level as the right to get a divorce, right? I mean that that's the same. Um, <clears throat> constitutional right. Constitutional right. Yeah. Yes, thank you. So, uh, it's it's almost hard to comprehend, right? Because we've seen it so much in our practices. I've considered. I haven't done it yet, but now that we're talking about it, I'm I'm thinking about it even more. That for couples that are in a second marriage, I'm thinking that I'm, that I'm going to start adding a document to their packages if they come to me for planning. That's a um, we do do a nomination of conservator, but adding some language in there that says, if I'm not able to make my own decisions, I, I do, I do not want to be, I do want, don't want any dissolution proceedings, um, you know, filed on my behalf. Oh wow! You know, interesting. Um, I mean, I'll talk to would my that, clients. Would that about have it. any power in the court? The judge read that. I I believe so. Yeah. I mean, the judge is still going to decide in the moment. Yeah. But if you have, um, you know, if you have some sp specific language, the judge will consider it that, that the person did contemplate this, mm. you know, when they did have capacity. Yeah. So you just talked about the, um, the fact that, you know, if people have the capacity to marry, 
uh, and now we want to talk about the capacity to divorce. And I know, Casey, you and I have talked about this before, about in family court, you're dealing with, you're not really dealing with the opposing party. You're dealing with the opposing party's uh, child, either a son or a daughter. Or your client. Or your client, that's right, if you're on the other side, right. And and with regard to the divorce is, con- is concerned, in my hypothetical, we're representing the wife, okay? And let's just assume that the son has obtained conservatorship and then he files for divorce against, uh, or you know, against our client. Uh, is there any argument that it, there was no capacity that the that the husband didn't really want a divorce? He doesn't want it now. Can we make that argument? Well, in California family law, the threshold for filing a divorce really isn't a difficult threshold to meet. It's really just whether someone understands the consequences of financial. Uh, financial orders that could be made. So the threshold for capacity to file divorce really isn't difficult. Now we start talking about the threshold to enter into contract. That might be a little bit more difficult. And certainly um, to the extent that a contract can be attacked on the grounds of duress, undue influence, those types of things, I think that there is there's a lot of there's a lot of vulnerability when it comes to those areas. So if you're in that situation, the analysis has I think at least two or three different steps. The first step to file, I think, is pretty easy, and and there isn't much there. The capacity to file is is something in the law that uh, is not difficult to show. But then you get into the next steps and the next steps, and then you have to look at each case, at each step in the case. Yeah. So in the case that I had. I decided to take the deposition of the uh, of the husband that was not didn't really have capacity, and it was interesting when I was questioning him about whether or not uh, he even knew where he was. He didn't really didn't know what city he was in, didn't know what year. Uh, I think that he uh, didn't even know when he got married to my spouse or my client. You know, it was like 1960, where in fact they were married in you know, like 1989 or something like that. And then the the what I consider the atom bomb question is, is do you want a divorce? And he started tearing up and crying and he looked at my client and, uh, you know, I love you. No, I don't want a divorce. You know, uh, do you think that could play out in court? As far as the capacity question? Yeah. And what, whether he really wants a divorce. I think so. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, there is some case law that supports that, but it, but it's interesting, you know, and, uh, uh, at that point it gets kind of ugly. Right, because really, what you're doing is you're fighting somebody else. You're not. There's no opposing party. You're getting a child. It's really an estate planning issue. Is really what it is. And I'll say that again. In California, it's a no fault jurisdiction. So all we need is one person to want the divorce. And if if the respondent, or the responding party, is incapacitated or not, the person the person that files for divorce and wants the divorce is obviously going to be able to push the divorce through. So in your scenario, I'm not sure if husband was the petitioner or the respondent, but if he's the respondent, the divorce is going to happen with or without him. If he's, a, if he's the petitioner and he says, you know, I he's don't the want... Petitioner. He, he said, he's saying, yeah. I don't want a divorce. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that at least shows that there are other interests that are being pushed here instead, yeah. of, instead yeah. of his. In my experience, I don't know about with you, Allie, but it's usually it's they're the petitioner. It's the son that's filing, filing you know. Yeah, I, I think that the financial issue is really what's, what is driving this more than anything else, you know, and there are some things that could be done, obviously, 
Uh, one of them would be an irrevocable trust. Uh, could you speak of that at all, Allie? Um, yeah. So uh, uh, our, our typical what people are familiar with a living trust is is a revocable trust. So it it um, you put your assets in, but you can change it. You could take assets out. You can do you know w- whatever whatever you need to do. An irrevocable trust is exactly that. It's irrevocable um, for the most part, and it allows someone to do planning. Um, that they know is not going to be changed down the line. And in order to change it, you have to go to court, you know, you, you, or you can build certain safeguards into it, but it does give you a little more. Um, you lose some control, of course, but it gives you um, more confidence that you, whatever you decide to do in that trust is, is going to be carried out. Yeah, and it seems to me that um, it could still be contested, I mean, it probably will be, right, because the children are going to say he didn't have capacity or she didn't have capacity at the time she signed that. So there could still be litigation. But assuming that somebody is found competent, that's a nice way of controlling uh, the bad behavior, right, or yes. th- to preclude the bad behavior, I guess. Right. And, then, and we have some safeguards, too. So in addition to, um, you know, the attorney that's drafting the trust, we get what's called a certificate of independent review, which is just another attorney that can come in to interview the, the, um, the testate, the, excuse me, the, the settlor of the trust, um, to just make sure, do you understand what this is? Do you know who your family members are? Do you know that you're giving, you know, your assets to this person and not this person, that kind of stuff. So there are some additional safeguards, but you're right. Any, anything can be contested. Yeah. And then, and then conversely, I know, Casey, you and I have dealt with a lot of people that are getting remarried and they're like, God, I, I really want to leave something for my kids. You know, I'm hypothetically, you know, a 60 year old man is remarrying and he's got grown children and uh, he's only known his fiance for, you know, six months about to get married. I mean, obviously a premarital agreement is something that may be considered in a scenario like that. That's what we're seeing when we, when we see elderly couples getting married, uh, they both, they both want to protect, uh, basically the, the estate for their adult children. And we have, we see them coming in for premarital agreements on those issues. Yeah. Okay. And I like to do trust for those people too, right? We do separate property trusts where, um, you know, you can, you can get creative, you know, you can leave something for your spouse, but you know, most of it for your kids or, um, that, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that that's a nice to do the separate property trust along with a premarital agreement is um, really the gold standard. Cool. Okay. Well, I think that we've had a very nice round discussion on that issue. Uh, I hope I hope people find that it was helpful. It certainly is. Every time I talk to uh, you, Allie, with regard to estate planning, I feel like light bulbs are going on because it's a foreign land for me. And then, of course, I love to hear Casey because she's so methodical and logical in her thinking. Okay, so we're going to lighten it up a little bit. Let's talk about a recent case. I think this is pretty recent. I saw this uh, while I was eating breakfast one morning. I think it was last week. Uh, Dixie Chicks, Natalie Maines, a strange husband's demanding $60,000 in monthly support. Uh, if, she gets the, if he gets that, what does that say about her income, Casey? I think she earns a. She makes a lot of a lot of money. Well, the, she makes a lot of money. Yeah, the article says that she's worth fifty million dollars. Oh my gosh! 
That's pretty good money. I tell you what, I, I'm a big fan of hers. I mm-hmm. love the music. I don't know anything about her. I think she's a little bit political. And I'm not a, a, you know, a fan of political people that are, are also artists, but I love her music. And I'm happy that she's making all kinds of money. But uh, here's what the article says. It says that the husband's saying that the Dixie chick, uh, Natalie, is trying to force him into poverty by not paying him support. And he's now pleading for a judge to award him $60,000 a month. Later on in the article, it says that he earns $150,000 and he, quote, can't support himself and their two children. Uh, Casey? I'm pretty sure there's a prenuptial agreement in that case. There is. There actually is. Did you know that already? I I just imagine there is. And I I wonder if he is attacking the prenuptial agreement or whether that $60,000 a month request is in line with it. Uh, I'd be curious to know that. Well, here's what it says. It says that Maines and uh, the husband signed a premarital agreement before their marriage in 2000, uh, and he has been challenging the validity of the deal. And so she's saying, hey, we'll, we'll have to wait to see if this is valid or not. So that would in- impact not child support, but spousal support, right? Right, absolutely. Okay. And so the other thing that I, that I always find interesting here, since I've been handling family law cases, is that women do not like to pay spousal support any more than men like to pay spousal support. Have you found that similar? Uh, There's no difference, right? I think that I equally have both men and women saying that's a hard pill to swallow yeah. when it comes to paying spousal support. Yeah, and so. and so it's not surprising today where we have more and more women in the workforce and households where women are actually the... Uh, main breadwinner that they're being asked to pay spousal support. And I thought this was kind of current. This article was current with what we're seeing in, in our practice here. Uh, it indicates that she's uh, earns about $2 million a year and $172,000 a month. Now, from what I could tell, you know, this is a California divorce because it talks about him moving out of his $12 million Brentwood mansion. Mm. Um, and these, the poor guy's moving into a $7,000 a month rental in Venice. Oh. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these poor people, man. I'm, I'm just crying my eyes out for them. But, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, $2 million a year, is that really a high income earner in the Los Angeles area? I don't think so. Yeah. Is that $2 million a year? No. Mm-mm. Okay, so she's not going to be able to make a claim that it's an extraordinary high child support order of $16,000 a month. Uh, you wouldn't think so, right? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. It, it does. It it just as a, a as an outsider on the on the spousal support um, issue, it 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 challenges my my um, what my sense of fair play. My sense of fair play, right? But that's isn't that so funny? Because it sh- of course it applies to to both genders right of, of course that's yeah. the way the law is yeah. but it's it's i've noticed my thinking around it has I've, i need to adjust myself because <laughs> so be, you're, you have to check your bias i do have <laughs> to check my bias on that one yes well, well yeah. you know it, when i got into the family law area i wanted to know why spousal support still exists today uh, given that you know it's usually two income households and women are more into the workforce. Yeah. They may not be treated fairly in the workforce, but you know, with that and what it boils down to it, it's really about uh, thinking of spousal support as something that the marriage earned during the marriage and the lower income person is you know really thrown out into the world while the other person is advancing in, in his or her career. Mm-hmm. And it's a case of trying to make it fair because usually it's a joint effort when, when the spouses are in money. So 
once I wrapped my head around that, I was okay with it, regardless of which spouse paid spousal support. So, well, thank you very much for joining us again. This was a very interesting topic. I hope that I get both of you on the show again sometime soon. Thank you, Don. Yes, thanks. And thank you for uh, watching us on Exhibit A, and we'll see you next time. Exhibit A is produced by David Lindley at the law offices of Donald P. Schweitzer in Pasadena, California. For more information, visit us online at PasadenaLawOffice.com and all social media platforms. 